Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. From the outside looking in at least, Jeff and Susan Wright appeared to be living the perfect life. Two kids, a dog, and a beautiful house in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. But what happened on the evening of January 13, 2003, forever shattered that illusion. Join me now as we explore a marriage that struggled to maintain a semblance of normality. You'll learn that as the Wright's dysfunction grew, it was their two innocent children that were tragically caught in the middle. In the end, this case will leave you wondering if it is ever really possible to know the truth. Jeff's friends and family considered him to be a charming, outgoing guy who had a way with the ladies. The 29-year-old enjoyed having a good time. He partied a lot, drinking hard, and occasionally using crack cocaine. He also frequented topless bars with his buddies. In spite of his somewhat questionable lifestyle, Jeff still managed to have a good career in sales. In 1997, while on a beach in Galveston, Texas, Jeff came across Susan Wish. Instantly taken by her blonde hair and stunning good looks, Jeff discovered the best way to gain the shy woman's attention was through her friends. So he started chatting with one of her friend's husbands, giving him a reason to hang out with the group for the day. Surprisingly, the ladies' man didn't make any forward advances to her directly. Instead, at the end of the evening, Susan returned to her car to find one of Jeff's business cards under a windshield wiper. Although 21-year-old Susan worried Jeff might be too old for her, she called him anyway and asked him out for dinner. He happily accepted, and Jeff and Susan's whirlwind romance began. Jeff often bought Susan flowers and took her out to fancy restaurants. 
He would also call multiple times a day just to check in and say hi. He pulled out all the stops to win Susan over, even telling her how much he loved her not long after they met. When Jeff was introduced to Susan's family, they found him sweet and thought he was handsome. They were also impressed that he aspired to own his own carpeting and flooring business one day. After only a few weeks into the relationship, Jeff told his friends he'd found the one. Jeff's buddies considered him very lucky to have met Susan when he did, considering his history of partying, alcohol, and drug use. They thought Susan could be a stabilizing influence in his life and a great match. They thought she might even be able to get Jeff to settle down. On February of 1998, Susan discovered she was pregnant. In October, Jeff and Susan were married in a small church ceremony. One month after their marriage, their son was born. At first, it appeared as though Jeff and Susan were the epitome of the American dream. They lived in a tidy small home, located on a quiet street in a newer neighborhood of Houston's northwestern outskirts. A couple of years after their son was born, they had a baby girl. While Susan stayed at home and looked after the children, Jeff worked as a sales rep for a flooring company. Those close to Jeff said marriage seemed to agree with him. The stability of being a family man had put a stop to most of his partying, and Jeff often bragged about his beautiful wife and wonderful children to his co-workers. In the year leading up to their fifth wedding anniversary, Jeff talked about building a new house. He also started shopping around for a new car for Susan. Jeff's long-term plans, however, would never be completed. Just four days later, things would take a shocking turn. Susan reached out to her mother and confessed the unimaginable. She had killed her husband. Her family then retained a lawyer named Neil Davis, and Susan was admitted to a mental health facility. That evening, on January 18, 2003, Davis contacted the authorities and reported a dead body. He even reported a location, the Wright's home address. Susan's lawyer refused to provide any additional details including the current whereabouts of his client. Later that same day, investigators went to the family home and discovered a bed frame, box spring, and bloody mattress in the backyard, surrounded by children's toys and half-full compost bags. An investigator also came across a small hunting knife with a broken tip. Jeff's partially buried body was found in the backyard in a hole he had recently dug during the beginning stages of his home improvement project. His body was face down with the back of his head and left shoulder and arm exposed. Red candle wax appeared to be dripped on his body. The police were horrified to find that an animal had removed Jeff's left hand from his arm. A cursory examination revealed neckties tied to Jeff's wrists, 
and one of his ankles had a bathrobe belt tied around it. It was also clear he had been stabbed multiple times. The investigators knew the medical examiner would be able to tell them more. They would just have to be patient. When the officers moved into the house for a closer inspection, the horror show continued. They could tell carpet had been cut out from the master bedroom, and some of the walls were partially painted. Numerous bottles of bleach were found, as well as blood-stained clothing, suggesting someone had at least attempted to clean up the scene. Blood spatter was also visible on the ceiling, walls, and floors. Prosecutors wasted no time in filing charges against Susan for the murder of her husband, Jeff. On January 24th, Susan turned herself in at the Harris County Courthouse. In a stunning turn of events, Susan pleaded not guilty to killing her husband because of self-defense. Her trial was set on February 24th, 2004. When the trial began, Susan's lawyer argued Susan had been subjected to years of emotional and physical abuse and had no choice but to kill Jeff to protect her and her children. The defense team then set out to prove this claim to the jury throughout the trial. According to Susan, her marriage to Jeff wasn't as happy as it appeared. She described herself as the wrapping on a package and that it was her job to make things look beautiful on the outside so that no one would wonder what it was like on the inside. Susan shared with the court that her relationship with Jeff really changed when their son Bradley was born. Jeff reportedly became a totally different person. For instance, he was unhappy Susan had gained weight during her pregnancy. He told me what a fat ass that I was. Um, he told me that I was stupid and that I was worthless. Along with criticizing her appearance, Susan testified Jeff was unsympathetic about her mental health struggles. When she told her husband that she had been diagnosed with postpartum depression, he refused to let her take the prescribed antidepressants. Susan claimed Jeff said, it wasn't rocket science what women did, and that I needed to suck it up and do my job. Susan said that Jeff became increasingly controlling. She described how dinner had to be on the table at a specific time, while the house had to be kept immaculate. If one toy happened to be out of place, Jeff would become irrationally angry. Even more, Jeff wanted to know where Susan was at all times, and only allowed her to leave the home for short periods. If Susan unexpectedly stopped by a store to pick up some groceries, went to visit friends, or even her family, and didn't tell Jeff in advance, he would confront her and accuse her of cheating on him. Realizing she didn't always want to be a stay-at-home mom, Susan asked Jeff if she could enroll in some classes at a local college. Because it meant she would be away from home, Jeff apparently refused to allow her to. Instead, she decided to sign up for an online course. 
thinking there was no way he could have an issue with that. But Susan was wrong. She stated that Jeff was furious and called her a dirty whore, who was obviously scheming up ways to cheat on him. On the other hand, Jeff, who was afraid his wife might be unfaithful, was accused himself of having numerous affairs with women he met through online dating sites. Susan testified the women Jeff was seen on the side would call the house while she and her children were home, which devastated her. Susan told the court she became even more disappointed and disgusted when Jeff's affairs resulted in her contracting herpes. Jeff apparently told Susan if she was a better wife, he wouldn't need to have affairs. Along with the verbal and emotional abuse, Susan told the jury Jeff subjected her to years of physical abuse. Whenever he became angry, he was unable to control himself. He would hit and kick Susan over and over again. He threw me up against the wall and he shook me by my arms as hard as he could until he wasn't angry and he began to punch me in the chest over and over again. And apparently, any little thing could set him off. Susan recalled one visit to her in-law's house that hadn't gone as well as planned. On the drive home, Jeff grabbed Susan's shoulder and threw her against the car window, then gripped her by the back of her head and banged her head against the dash, all the while yelling at Susan that the less-than-enjoyable visit had been all her fault. Evidence found in the home presented by Susan's defense seemed to support her claims of physical abuse. There were fist-sized holes in the drywall that had been hastily patched. Susan said the damage was evidence of times Jeff had attempted to punch her, but had missed and hit the wall instead. There was also a door frame that had been broken in multiple spots, which Susan said happened when Jeff repeatedly slammed the door on her arm until the wood had shattered. Considering the defense could not prove any independent evidence proving Susan was a battered wife, such as medical or police reports, they did their best to round up a handful of witnesses to put on the stand who could corroborate their client's testimony. Susan's mother, sister, and hairdresser all claimed they had seen bruises on Susan. Susan's sister Cindy said she noticed bruises all over her arms and legs and saw her on two different occasions with a black eye. One of Susan's closest friends, Jamie Darhall, also observed bruises on Susan and empathized her friend was terrified of her husband. Jamie also noticed that Susan would cut their outing short, worriedly explaining she had to be home in time to have dinner ready and on the table for Jeff. If she didn't meet his demands, she was at risk of getting Jeff angry, something she needed to avoid doing at all costs. Susan also clarified to the jurors 
that she didn't realize her husband had a checkered past. He had apparently assaulted a former girlfriend, and in 1996, he had pleaded guilty to a felony drug possession charge and received probation. Susan's testimony regarding Jeff's drug use was substantiated by his friends. One of his party buddies told the court, Jeff was a man who often lost all control of his temper and flew into violent rages, many of them drug-fueled. The medical examiner found traces of cocaine and other illegal drugs in Jeff's system, supporting the fact that Jeff had continued using drugs well into his marriage. Susan maintained Jeff's drug use brought out a real dark side in his character. She became increasingly worried about his behavior when he started smoking marijuana practically every afternoon after work. Being high impacted how he treated the children. Susan outlined how Jeff would pick up their little son and throw him high into the air. Every time this happened, Susan's heart skipped a beat. Would today be when her stoned husband missed catching her son? According to Susan, when she tried to talk to her husband about his treatment of their son and why it had her concerned, Jeff would abruptly put a stop to the conversation. He would yell at her and tell her that she had no right to say to him how he could interact with their children. Jeff also refused to admit he had a drug problem. Their loving family home had become a battlefield. Knowing the question was going to be asked, the defense tried to explain to the court why Susan didn't just leave her abuser. Susan testified she had decided to move out once during the summer of 1999. According to Susan, Jeff had beaten her so badly and then demanded she apologize for making him so angry. After he left for work, Susan called her sister Cindy for help. Cindy and her husband arrived with a moving truck, and together they packed up her things. They then spent the night at her parents' house, and there appeared to be a light at the end of the tunnel. She was hopeful that the dangerous relationship had finally come to an end. But early the next morning, Jeff called Susan and informed her a moving van would be there soon, and she needed to get herself, their son, and all their belongings into the van and come home as quickly as possible. Otherwise, he threatened he would kill her or Bradley. Susan listened to Jeff. She told the court, I didn't have a choice. I was afraid of him. But as much as I was afraid of him, I loved him and I wanted things to work. I was embarrassed, and I left, like it was my fault. I felt if I could be perfect enough and he would always be happy, then everything would be okay. Susan's past experiences also played a role in why it was difficult for her to break the cycle of abuse. Cindy explained, Susan had always lacked confidence. She told the jury, even growing up, my sister was always less than confident. Susan had trouble standing up for herself, 
when she tried out for the drill team, some of the older girls said something mean that made her cry. She felt so devastated that she transferred to another school. Along the same lines, Susan revealed she struggled to feel beautiful and valued by the young men she dated. Susan felt inferior and as though she had to try her hardest to please others to be accepted. Additionally, Susan's childhood home was almost a carbon copy of the environment Susan had to deal with as a wife and mother. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Susan, Cindy, and their brother Jim were raised in what appeared to be an idyllic upper middle class home. With their mother a quintessential stay-at-home mom who baked meals from scratch, and their father, a prosperous mechanical engineer. In fact, their lives were far from perfect. Their father would often go into rages and beat his wife and children. When thinking back to her childhood, Susan said, We learned to walk on eggshells. We did our best to put on a smile and make everything look normal. When dad got mad, we tried not to be seen. I thought that's what happened in every house. If you had told me every husband didn't yell at his wife or make her feel less than dirt, I wouldn't have believed you. Considering her history, for many, it was no surprise Susan had a skewed understanding of what a healthy, loving relationship should be. Susan continued to detail to the court how her marriage to Jeff became increasingly tumultuous. When Susan experienced postpartum depression after the birth of their second child, just like she had done after Bradley was born, it made Jeff even angrier than the first time. By fall of 2002, Susan recalled, life at the home with Jeff was nearly intolerable. He had changed jobs, but was making less money than he'd expected. His behavior was more and more unpredictable. Susan provided some of the lowlights for the jury, including how Jeff had urinated on his daughter's bed one night while in a drunken stupor, and how he had purchased an air rifle, telling Susan he was going to use it to keep the family in line. Later, she said, he hit her with it. Jeff was spiraling out of control, and Susan 
had felt helpless to stop it. Susan finally reached her breaking point on the evening of January 13, 2003, after Jeff directed his anger at their son. Jeff arrived home from boxing lessons, all amped up, and Susan said she was sure he'd been using drugs. Jeff repeatedly tried to roughhouse their son, who wanted no part of it. That just kept frustrating Jeff. The more that he didn't want to do it, he kept calling Bradley a sissy and a little girl. Did Jeff end up hitting Bradley in the cheek? Yes, he did. Jeff punched him in the face so hard that he fell back into a love seat. Later that evening, their son went to Susan in tears and told her what had happened. After Susan put her son and daughter to bed, she gave Jeff an ultimatum. She told him the time had come for him to get professional help for his anger issues and drug use. If he refused, Susan made it clear her and the children would have no choice but to leave. She wouldn't stand for him abusing their children. It was her job to protect them, even if it meant needing to leave him. Jeff didn't appreciate Susan trying to exert any control in their relationship. Susan testified Jeff responded to her ultimatum swiftly and violently. He came at me and he swung me around and threw me against the wall and he told me not to give him any f***ing ultimatums, bitch, that I didn't have the right. Then Susan told the jury Jeff dragged her to the bed and raped her. After the attack, Susan was lying in bed trying to escape the horror of her reality. My eyes were closed and I heard his voice. <laughs> And it was scary. It was, it was calm. And he said, die, bitch, and I opened up my eyes. The first thing Susan saw upon opening her eyes was Jeff above her holding a knife. At that moment, Susan experienced a complete break with reality and was driven by self-preservation and maternal instinct. Susan claimed she was able to overtake her six-foot-three 220-pound husband by kicking him in the groin and wrestling the knife away from him. Then, in a frenzied attack, she stabbed her husband and the father of her children at least 193 times. Susan tearfully detailed for the court some of the places where she stabbed Jeff and why she felt she couldn't stop until he was dead. In his head, and in his chest, and in his neck, and in his stomach, and in his leg for when he kicked me. I stabbed him in his penis for all the times that he made me have sex, and I didn't want to, and I couldn't stop because he was going to kill me, and I couldn't stop. What did you hear that made you stop? Bradley was at the door. When their son came to the master bedroom door to see what all the commotion was about, Susan put on her rope and tied her husband to the bed with the neckties. And then I tied up his right arm to the bed so that he couldn't get up because I was afraid he was going to get up and come after me when I was putting Bradley back to sleep. After getting their four-year-old son settled, Susan went to the kitchen, chose another knife, returned to the bedroom, and continued 
to stab Jeff to death. I went back in the room and I was scared. I knew he was going to kill me and I was so scared because I didn't want to die. When she was finished, Susan got a dolly and tied Jeff's body to it so she could move her dead husband outside. She described to the jury how she believed she had to tie Jeff to the cart with more neckties and the belt from her rope so that he'd stay on. I kept thinking he was going to get up. Susan rolled Jeff to the backyard and buried his body in a hole her husband had dug. After covering his remains with dirt, Susan said she sat on the couch for the rest of the night. The knife stayed in her hands while she continued to fear for her life. Why didn't you call the police? Because Jeff was still alive. What do you mean he's still alive? This is not rational. You understand that now. Now I understand that. When he was still alive, he wasn't dead. She explained, I watched for Jeff to get up because I was afraid the second I went to sleep, he was going to get up and come after me again. During her testimony, Susan said she'd been in a fog for days after murdering her husband. Her lawyer, Neil Davis, said Susan's bizarre behavior indicated she was experiencing a complete detachment from reality. She couldn't eat and sleep was definitely out of the question. Susan also positioned her cleaning of the crime scene as an indication of the mental issues she endured after her husband's death. She testified she knew Jeff would be enraged by the bloody mess in the bedroom, so she purchased multiple bottles of bleach and some cans of paint and started to clean up the master bedroom. In her fog, Susan managed to cut out sections of the carpet around the bed, take apart the bed frame, and haul it and the blood-stained mattress into the backyard, where it all remained eerily surrounded by children's toys, until later found by the investigators. For Susan, her actions had been the result of some sort of mental breakdown, which lasted for days. She reflected back to the time in question, telling the jury she was so terrified of Jeff, her brain wouldn't accept the fact that he was dead. All of the events that happened in that room, my brain wouldn't let me process it. It was so horrible. It was so terrifying. <laughs> she was sure he was still alive and was going to return at any moment and kill her. It wasn't until five days after she killed her husband that she finally realized something horrible had happened. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The defense argued it was apparent Susan had acted in self-defense. Susan's lawyer contended, even if the jury disagreed and found Susan guilty of murder, considering the fact she was a loving mother of two small children with no history of crime or violence, she should receive only probation. To say the prosecution disagreed with the defense's version of events was an understatement. The prosecutor, Kelly Siegler, did set out to prove Jeff's death was not the result of self-defense. Instead, it was cold-blooded, calculated murder. For her to claim self-defense and say she took a knife away from a man who outweighed her by 100 pounds is ridiculous. This case is not about self-defense. It's about a slaughter. Prosecutor Siegler told the jury what she thought took place the night of the murder. According to the prosecutor, Susan lit red candles on the bedside table to set the mood, put on some sexy lingerie, and then convinced her husband to be tied to their bed with the promise of an erotic sexual encounter. Siegler argued Susan intended all along to stab Jeff to death once he was defenseless so she could obtain the money from his $200,000 life insurance policy. One of Jeff's co-workers supported this motive when he testified he had overheard a phone conversation between Jeff and Susan, during which Susan berated her husband for filling out the paperwork for the life insurance incorrectly, holding up the process. The state believed Susan was eager for the life insurance policy to be in place so she could proceed with her plans to murder Jeff. In Siegler's opinion, the defendant's version of events was unbelievable. The prosecutor told the jury it would have been impossible for the petite defendant to overtake her much larger, cocaine-fueled husband if he really had been straddling her and threatening her with a knife. The neckties and bathrobe belt found tied to Jeff were not placed there because Susan's son had interrupted the attack. Instead, Siegler said Jeff had been tied up as a part of the seduction ruse and remained tied up throughout the entire offense. The red wax found dripped on Jeff's body had been used as a part of a sex game. Medical examiner Dwayne Wolf backed up the idea of Jeff being restrained during the entire attack when he clarified, Out of his 193 stab wounds, almost all of them were on the front of the body. And if a person is not restrained in some way, they'd be moving. I would be moving. I would have stab wounds predominantly on my back as I'm heading toward the door. In a controversial move, Siegler brought the blood-soaked mattress and reassembled the bed frame into the courtroom. The prosecutor wanted to demonstrate how she thought the events really played out on the night of the murder. She said, The jury needed to appreciate how completely defenseless Jeffrey was when Susan attacked him. It didn't seem to face the prosecutor when Susan broke down when she saw the bed and wept 
during the entire demonstration. With the jury's full attention, she explained she was around the same size as Susan, and her colleague, Paul Doyle, was roughly the same height and weight as Jeff. Siegler then got lead investigator Mark Reynolds to tie Doyle to the bed with neckties and a bathrobe belt. In the same way, the ligatures found on Jeff's wrists and leg suggested he had been tied up. Next, Siegler climbed on top of the bed and straddled Doyle with a knife in her hand. She began a play-by-play demonstration on how Susan inflicted the wounds on her husband's body. If the defendant were to get up on top of Jeffrey Wright, something like this and straddle him, and she's right-handed, and how do you think she held the knife? Put it in my hand. The prosecutor acted out stabbing defenseless Doyle in the eye, then the face and neck moving down his body. Siegler sarcastically asked Susan, When you stabbed him, the 56th time, or the 89th time, or the 158th time, was your arm getting tired? Did you hear the medical examiner testify that you didn't stab his penis? What you did was nick at it no, and I take little flashes at it. No, I did not flash at him. No. You didn't stab his penis. That's not a stab like this. Like you're mad, like you're afraid, like you can't, can't stop. Objection, Your Honor. I'm going to ask the prosecutor to get back down in your seat, please, and refrain from doing this two feet from the witness. Eventually, Judge Jim Wallace sustained the defense's objection when Siegler tried to act out Susan's scenario of what happened by lying on the bed with Doyle on top of her to show that Wright couldn't have wrestled free from her husband in that type of situation. But by that point, the jury had a difficult time getting the image out of their minds. One, two, three, four. Can you imagine 193 times? They could vividly see Susan seducing her husband, tying him down, and stabbing him to death. The prosecution also called into question Susan's claims of being in a fog after killing her husband. That want to tell you post-traumatic stress syndrome? How about cover your tail syndrome? The week after you killed Jeff, Mrs. Wright, during this fog that you experienced in and out that week, you always managed to take care of your children, though, did you not? Yes, like I had said before. That was a yes or no answer, did you not? Uh, yes, ma'am, I'd always Thank done it. Siegler told the court, Susan knew exactly what she was doing after she killed Jeff. She was just attempting to cover up the murder of her husband. Not only did Susan's attempt to clean up the crime scene by removing the carpet from the master bedroom, cleaning the room with bleach, and painting the walls, but also she took her husband's name off the answering machine, emptied their joint bank accounts, and filed her first abuse claim against Jeff for hitting both her and her son. Siegler claimed these were not the actions of someone in a fog. Susan's behavior instead showed she had planned to murder Jeff all along. The prosecution even went as far as to argue Jeff never physically abused Susan. Siegler admitted 
that perhaps the right marriage was unhealthy and destined to end badly, but she was adamant. Susan was lying about the physical abuse. The prosecutor told the jury the type of abuse Susan had described would have caused grave injuries, such as a concussion or broken bones, but that the defendant never received any medical treatment for such injuries. Hello? Where's the doctor, the MD, the PhD? This is the only case you're ever going to hear of where the defendant can diagnose herself as a battered wife. Where's their expert? Siegler also argued that if Susan had been the victim of such extreme domestic violence, there would be some kind of official record of it, such as medical records or police reports. Yet Susan never once reported being abused while Jeff was alive. To reinforce their assertion that Susan was not a battered wife, the prosecution lined up numerous friends, neighbors, and clients of Jeff, who all said they had never noticed any signs of domestic abuse. One friend of the couple described Jeff and Susan's relationship as very happy, and Jeff's boss testified that the Wrights were a leave-it-to-beaver family. Jeff's father, Ron Wright, admitted his son had a drug problem, but told the jury it was under control. Jeff's father also flatly denied his son would have been capable of abusing Susan. We don't abuse women. We love our women. To explain how it was so easy for Susan to lie about being abused and to commit such a heinous crime, the prosecutor attacked Susan's character, participating in what some would consider victim-shaming during cross-examination and closing arguments. Siegler blatantly referred to Susan as a beautiful blonde with a black heart, calling her attention to her outward beauty and suggesting a dangerous evil character lurking underneath. One of the critical points in the prosecution's argument was that Susan was not the loving innocent wife and mother she pretended to be. Siegler revealed, You're a former dancer. Susan had been a topless dancer for two months when she was 18 years old. Siegler linked Susan's time as a topless dancer with how she went about killing Jeff. The prosecutor argued, Susan learned seduction techniques and sexually sadistic practices while working at the topless club. As a result, she knew how to lure her husband into submission by teasing him with candle wax and practicing bondage games. You're going to sit up there and tell this jury that y'all never practiced bondage. Oh, no. Oh, no, that was good. Are you, like, appalled at the idea? Is that where we get that oh, no from? Siegler pressed Susan hard on the stand, asking her, what did you say to Jeff to get him undressed, to get him nude, to get him up on the bed? as you tied his hands so tight there, as you made love to him. Although Susan vehemently denied seducing her husband and stuck with the story she had killed Jeff in self-defense, the prosecution's tactics called both Susan's past and character into question. Siegler explained to the jury, Susan plays the martyr very well, but there's nothing we could find that shows she's telling the truth. In closing, the prosecutor stressed, Susan was a card-carrying, obvious, no doubt about it, 
caught red-handed, confirmed, documented liar, who should be found guilty of murdering her husband. After only five and a half hours of deliberations, on March 3rd, 2004, a jury of seven men and five women found Susan Wright guilty of the murder of her husband, Jeff. Some of the jury members later shared they considered the 193 stab wounds, a pause to change knives, and the near week-long cover-up of the crime hard to reconcile with, a killing done at the moment for the sake of self-preservation. The following day, Susan was sentenced to 25 years in prison. The young mother sobbed when her sentence was handed down. As she was let out of the courtroom, she mouthed, I'm sorry to her family. Susan later revealed both the verdict and the sentence were a shock. I had gotten up on the stand and I had told them what happened and that's just the way that life was. I expected them to believe it. Susan appealed her verdict and was denied in 2005 when the 14th Court of Appeals of Texas upheld her conviction. Susan's luck changed in 2009 when the court granted her a new sentencing trial after they found Susan's counsel rendered ineffective assistance during the punishment phase of her trial. It was like rolling the dice because a new trial could mean a reduced sentence, being found innocent or sentenced to an even greater term, meaning life. It was a risk Susan was willing to take. Why? Because she wanted to be with her children again. The Court of Appeals maintained Susan's defense failed when they didn't present a single expert on domestic violence who could walk the jury through why Susan didn't report her abuse or how she could have committed such an unthinkable violent act. An example of one such witness would have been Dr. Jerome Brown, a longtime Houston clinical psychiatrist who examined Susan when she was admitted to the psychiatric ward for examination after first confessing to murdering Jeff. He kept looking at the door and looking at the, 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 the vent uh, into the room, the air conditioning vent, and saying things like, is that him out there? Or I have a feeling he may be out there. Are the doors locked? Even though the version of events Susan told Dr. Brown did not match up exactly to what she had testified to in court, any differences in her story could have been explained away by the trauma of being a victim of abuse and also by the disassociative state she was in after killing her husband. When I talked to her, she was so fragile that day that she simply could not recount accurately the most violent events of that evening. She's repressing events that are too horrible to think about. By not allowing the jury to hear any expert testimony, on the impact of domestic abuse, Susan was basically left to fend for herself. At Susan's resentencing, though, Dr. Brown and other expert witnesses on domestic violence were called to testify. Susan's defense had also been found ineffective for not calling another witness to the stand, a woman who had once been engaged to Jeff and claimed to have been systematically abused during their relationship. 
this key witness played a central role in Susan's new hearing. Misty McMichael told the jury she met Jeff in 1989 when she worked as a stripper at the Colorado Bar and Grill in Houston. They began dating, and before she knew it, they had moved in together and had gotten engaged. At first, Misty said Jeff was charming, but when he drank, he became abusive. What kind of names would he call you now? Ah, uh, whore, cheater, you know, bitch. As he did with Susan, he moved on to physical abuse. What did his abuse consist of? You name it. Um, hitting, punching, choking, kicking, slapping, hate even use whatever was around to abuse you with. Once, he reportedly threw Misty down a flight of stairs. And he would throw me down that staircase whenever he wanted to. And I mean, you could easily break in your neck or anything falling down that staircase. <laughs> what would provoke him throwing you down the stairs? Who knows? I mean, did you ever do anything intentional to him? I didn't do anything. I did not cheat on him. I didn't do anything. And on another occasion, backhanded her across the face. She testified things hit rock bottom when Jeff threw a glass at her while they were out clubbing. I don't know what I said, but he took the glass and he threw it. And it sh shattered on my face. Aww. And it cut me and it bled everywhere. Aww. Still, I have the piece of glass in my chin. Although she was too afraid to press charges, not much time passed before she left Jeff out of fear for her safety. Has coming down here to testify been an easy or a hard thing for you to Very do? Hard. Why has it been hard? Because you have to relive things that you don't want to. Like what? Like his abuse. The prosecution made sure to mention Misty's past, working at a strip club, presumably to bring her character into question. But Misty wasn't about to take any of it. What does that have to do with anything? Okay. Thank you so much. You, you had a piece of glass still in do. your chin. Still, it's still here. Can you see it? Absolutely. I, I, and I you know. still don't believe that he was an abuser? Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When Susan's defense team included witnesses, such as domestic abuse experts, who could speak to Susan's disturbing behavior, and Misty, who could corroborate Jeff's abusive nature, it reframed how the jury viewed Susan. 
Susan's new attorney, Tommy LaFon, told the court, you don't stab someone 193 times for no reason. It's the result of years of pent-up frustration, anger, abuse, and terror. The defense maintained Susan killed Jeff out of self-defense to protect her and her children from a drug-addicted and abusive man. The prosecutors, however, argued when Susan killed Jeff, it was divorce by premeditated murder. They also claimed the abuse Susan described being afflicted on her by Jeff was actually abuse she witnessed her father inflict on her mother. In Susan's first trial, Susan's mother denied being abused by her husband, but in Susan's second trial, admitted it was true. She knew if I told her yes, I'd go home and get the hell beaten out of me. I might not be back the next day, Nobody. and I might not ever get up off the floor again the next day. Nobody's you think I'm going to sit here and say yes? That guy kicks the out of me. I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry, but abuse is a secret, and it's a secret abused women die to keep. They don't tell. You get kicked, you get hit, you don't tell. And I can't help it if it's the prosecutor, you don't tell, because you got to go home with that guy. On November 20th, 2010, after a two-week trial, the jury sentenced Susan to 20 years in prison, five years less than the original sentence she had received. After being handed down her revised sentence, Susan faced Jeff's family in court and apologized to them for the first time. I just want you to know that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you don't have your son and your brother. And I'm sorry that the kids don't have their father. Following Susan's apology, Jeff's brother offered a victim impact statement to the court. My brother was a kind and thoughtful man who loved life. He's not here to defend himself, but I am. Jeff's legacy will be his two children, who my wife and I are honored to raise. As for Susan Wright, I've seen your tears, and I realize... They are not tears for remorse, nor are they tears for what you've done to your two beautiful children. The Wright family has been given a life sentence, and I think you got off too easy. To date, Susan has been up for and denied parole twice once on June 12th, 2014, and again on July 24th, 2017. Susan's next chance for parole is in July 2020. Barring another appeal, Susan will be eligible for release on February 28th, 2024, when she is 48 years old. One of the most tragic outcomes of this case is that Susan and Jeff's children lost both their mother and father when they were very young and had their whole lives turned upside down. Since their father's murder, they've had zero contact with their mother. Her parental rights were terminated after her conviction. Despite this case being substantially reduced to a he said, she said, as it wove its way through the judicial system, as well as the court of public opinion. 
One positive outcome managed to emerge. Whether or not people believe Susan is a victim of domestic violence, the publicity the case received spread the knowledge that victims of abuse often suffer in silence and don't always file official reports. They can feel isolated and trapped and experience paralyzing fear and shame. Frequently, domestic abuse survivors require some assistance to break free from their abuser. Susan's haunting self-reflection from behind bars captures the importance of taking action to stop domestic violence before it's too late. Susan wondered, isn't it strange that I had to come to prison to feel safe? Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Ida L., Michael S., Laura B., Lynn C., Quinton M., and Rebecca M. And now I'd like to introduce two podcasts. Bad in the Boondocks. Hey, I'm Stan. And I'm Drew. And we are your hosts of Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks is a fresh take on true crime podcast. We are a father and son team from way back in the sticks of South Carolina. Yeah, in a town of less than 500. And we have a shared passion for all things true crime. So, every Saturday we get together and swap stories about a true crime event. We try and find the most twisted and vile losers of our human race. Now you won't hear a lot of endless banner on Bad and Boondocks. But what you will hear is all the unedited facts on the cases we choose, no matter how gory or troublesome they are. And you'll hear it all with a unique southern flair. And along the way, you'll hear just the right amount of discussion and jokes to keep you and us from completely losing your mind. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google, Stitcher, Himalaya, and CastBox. Or just go to badintheboondocks.com and download all of our episodes there. So, come on down to the boondocks and get your redneck on with us. We promise, you'll have a good time. An Invisible Choir Invisible Choir a true crime podcast that explores the most egregious and heinous murders through primary source audio and investigative storytelling. These are the tragic stories of the missing and the dead, their voices reaching out from beyond the grave, seeking peace and yearning for justice. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Go to InvisibleChoir.com to learn more. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show, 
and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.